All right. We are live in the LCI green room where we are open and unscripted, and we like to debate, talk about things, have open conversations. And I am joined today. I am the host uh, of tonight's discussion slash debate slash brawl. I don't know what it'll become. We'll find out. Um, and uh, I, I am joined by Jacob Winograd and Jack Lloyd, uh, two fellow uh fighters in the cause for liberty who disagree about something and we want to talk about it because it's a really really important topic uh, jacob winograd is host of the biblical anarchy podcast and that's part of the christians for liberty network which is part of what you're watching and listening to right now um the uh, and jack lloyd is a multimedia content producer in the liberty movement whose work spans fiction nonfiction, with educational videos music music videos skits comic book series and all kinds of jokes about him and his wife on on social media that uh, we get to enjoy. Um, so follow Jack Lloyd on 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 all the on all the channels. Um, so uh, Jack and Jacob, thank you for joining us here. You know, we're really talking about something that's pretty important that's been on a lot of people's minds, uh, and that is what is the libertarian response to Israel's war in Gaza? And there's like a million different takes on this. Uh, some of them. Uh, are from libertarians that don't sound libertarian. Some of them are from non-libertarians who actually sound libertarian. And so there's just a lot of of uh, a lot of noise out there. And you know, the Libertarian Christian Institute, we want to cut through some of that noise and we want to bring the truth to people. And I think there's no better uh, set of people to discuss some of these things uh, than than the two of you. So uh, I really appreciate both of you being on here. Uh, as much as we're going to sort of put a little bit of structure to this conversation. Um, it's going to be open-ended to, to a degree, but we're going to do the, the, the formal, you know, start off with, you know, formal remarks and do some, uh, hey, uh, rebuttals and then get into the, the Q&A, especially if we have live stream people sending in some questions near the end, we'll, we'll do that. So there will be time for uh, people to submit questions uh, either to both of you or to just one of you for, you know, for whatever reason that is. Um, and so uh, basically, uh, we are going to start off with a 10-minute opening remark. I'm going to put Jack up on here first. Uh, and uh, what is, Jack, the libertarian res- What is the proper libertarian response to Israel's war in Gaza? Well, thank you so much for uh, having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, for me, this topic is, is kind of special because it ties back uh, to my own family's history and upbringing because uh, my family, they were uh, messianic and the topic of Israel was was often discussed in a hot button issue uh, growing up. For some people, it's it's a new topic and something that's not really you know close to home for them, and it only pops up in the media cycle. But for me, you know, my family has uh, been to Israel um, some of the multiple times. Uh, family's done birthright and things like that. Um, so I have this uh, kind of backdrop to the situation where I've seen things going on, you know, more immediately uh, to myself from hearing my own family's stories and, and things uh, going on there. And when I thought when I talk about the situation, I always keep it in a libertarian context, right? Because we're talking about issues abroad and uh, conflicts and, and things like that. You know, it's sometimes hard to stay focused on the question of property rights and uh, escalations of violence and, you know, who's doing what, especially in a region that's had so many different people fight over it for millennia. So, you know, the two things I, I really want to, to get through to people are first and foremost, you know, what is actually in your controls individual? Because I know a lot of times people get caught up in these issues and they debate about them like, oh, if you don't say this language about the situation, you're a genocide denier and all this other stuff. Uh, but let's be real about what most people are and what they do. Um, they're just talking online. None of their blogs, none of their news articles have saved a single life. They have not stopped uh, Israel from doing any bombings. They have not stopped Hamas. 
Um, so a lot of times it's just flag and bio virtue signaling that people are doing. They're not actually saving anybody's lives um, by complaining in and of itself. So that's important to remember. And then when we're talking about the situation where we're describing uh, the situation, the question should be, are we advocating for something that gets people to be pr uh, principled and consistent toward the ends of a libertarian order, right? We don't want to, um, when thinking about the situation, shift from one type of criticism of statism to a new form of, oh, we're accepting this other form of statism, right? And that's often lost in the discourse because whenever there's children dying and there's you know bombings and suicide bombings and things like that, it's very easy for people to get lost in it, just like with the gun control debate, right? People will say, well, think of the children, and they're, they're all shot up in, in school shootings. And it's very easy to have your heartstrings pulled and, and then lose sight of, okay, well, how did this you know, come to be? So going to the question of how did this all come to be, uh, we have to remember that people who are currently in uh, the land of Israel today um, have long histories and, and different perspectives and backgrounds depending on where they came from. And the impetus specifically for Israel came out of fleeing persecution, right? So uh, just like the American experience uh, where people were fleeing Britain because they didn't want to be persecuted for their Christian beliefs against the Church of England, against the Catholic Church, they came to America, Puritans, Quakers and the like, they came over to the New World because they wanted freedom of religion and they wanted a sanctuary for themselves. Uh, Jews were also coming to the region for the same purposes. They had faced persecution across Europe, you know, not just in Nazi Germany, but in other countries as well, um, being kept out of professions, um, being quartered in the ghettos. And eventually, you know, got to a point where Jews were like, OK, we need a place that is safe away from all this persecution, you know, especially, you know, things like where the Spanish, you know, 1492, kicking out nearly 100,000 Jews from Spain. Um, so it, it's a serious situation. So they wanted refuge, uh, much like anybody else who's fleeing persecution or tough situations, of course. In the land, there were some people there, um, certainly, including Jews who are already existing there. Um, and the contention people have in this is, is whether or not um, there was this type of generalized right to land and whether everything was already homesteaded. And so, you know, when you look at the actual uh, land map, you know, going back, and this is not even perfectly accurate, but it's kind of a, just a, a sense of it. You can already see that most of the land uh, back then was obviously not physically and directly homesteaded, right? We're libertarians. The first question is, is who has property rights? What and how did they develop it? And the reason why it wasn't uh, very homesteaded was in part because the Ottoman Empire didn't exactly have the, the best of property rights rules. You know, with their Ottoman uh, land code, they had this thing called the Musha system, where different uh, agricultural farmers, they couldn't actually homestead what they were, uh, you know, grazing and, and doing crops over because there would be this lottery system. People would draw lots every up to uh, nine years where they would have to trade off the land. And the Ottoman Empire was also causing people to become impoverished because of conscription. So men were being carted off and forced to fight. Um, and then other lands were being held by absentee landowners. So we're talking about people who are in Damascus and Syria and stuff like that who are rich. They had crony deals with the Ottomans. And these very poor uh, farmers, the fellahim, they would you know, often be in some type of debt, whether it was a tax debt or um, a kind of feudalism with these people where they would never really be able to own the land and they were very poor. And being in a desert region, obviously things were tough. There was uh, economic conditions that went up and down because of bad weather and famines and, and all types of things, plagues, birds dying. It wasn't fun. People would move in and out of these regions to different countries, you know, surrounding, of course, uh, you know, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, stuff like that, depending on, on the seasons and depending on uh, economic activities. 
And some of this was recorded as well and noted um, about by the British. They did a survey of the mandate and they did some reporting. And, you know, they noted that there were certain types of, by their standards, illegal immigration, which, you know, kind of hard to, to measure, uh, you know, back with their technology. But they had their own forms of borders and checkpoints uh, back then, too, with the British, because the, the British and the police there, you know, manage things. So. Obviously, over time, with the Jewish National Fund and getting people over there, more and more Jews started to come in. This is way before Israel, right? Um, eventually, it got to a point where there was, you know, significant um, Israeli uh, settlements uh, or Jewish settlements, you know, in, in a pre-Israel. So, um, obviously, people were uh, feeling tense about that um, in the same way that, you know, some people felt tense about uh, black people moving into white neighborhoods in America. And they're like, oh my gosh, how dare they move you know, close to us? And some people would kick up animosity like Al Husseini, who uh, you know, start up riots against uh, uh, Jews and would have um, them come and hurt you know, Jewish businesses and attack people. So eventually, of course, uh, this all started to come to a head, especially after uh, World War II. Uh, you know, there's this big nationalism drive everywhere because after the big world wars, Things were getting redrawn around the world. Nationalism was very strong, and people were, you know, basically resetting the boundaries of, of global politics. Um, and so Israel was one of those creations out of that. Um, and they were not unique. You know, the the British and the French they were also uh, crafting out their little, uh, you know, different redrawings of the map, breaking up the Ottoman Empire that became Turkey. Um, and you know, for example, Syria was created out of it. Pakistan was created out of it, which created this huge conflict between the Muslims and the sheiks and the Hindus. There's like 14 million people, 15 million about displaced, a million people were killed in the conflicts, pretty bloody. And you know that is just typical for what happens when the governments are picking the winners and losers and just drawing boundaries and then people hate each other over it. You know, it's not unique to there. Africa had that too with the scramble for Africa after the Berlin conference. Um, that's the nature of statism. So Israel is not special in that way. And a lot of people want to make Israel special uh, and say, oh, these people are these occupiers and they move people out and all this sort of stuff. Sure, just like most every other country, like the United States kicked out the Native Americans, like they kicked out Mexicans, millions of them between the uh, Mexican-American War, you know, from uh, 1846, 48, and then the Treaty of Guadalupe, and then Operation Wetback, 1.3 million Mexicans were kicked out, many who were naturalized. And of course, some people be like, oh, well, we need to build a border wall for them, right? And, uh, of course, they don't care about Mexicans coming back in after getting kicked out because that doesn't fit their narrative, their selfish narrative of wanting to, to have security for themselves, but, you know, not for others. So there's a big philosophical conundrum here where people are trying to demonize Israel uniquely, uh, but failing to see the, the broader global picture. And so it's just, for me, a matter of bringing it back down to basics. What are we trying to communicate to others? And in that end, we're trying to communicate that we want to have a libertarian order, which means we want to promote de-escalation of conflict. We don't want Israel blowing up hospitals and stuff like that and having you know kids die. But again, Hamas has built tunnel networks under there and they're shooting rockets and killing Jews as well. So you can't sit there and say and play you know two sides and just ignore that you know those things are happening. You know, you have to sit there and go, okay, there are serious casualties from people fighting this war and something bigger is needed to solve this. And that bigger thing is in the realm of ideas. It is about Moving away from the collectivism, the statism, and the religious fanaticism. Doesn't matter whether it's on the Zionist side, doesn't matter if it's on the, the Hamas Islamic side. Um, if the goal is to cause more damage and to and to hurt people, we should be against that. We should be looking for peace. We should be looking for solutions that involve discrete property rights. And 
those things can be done if we get rid of the big collectivist language and all or nothing thinking. And we start to realize what the situation is in many of these places, which is a lot of broken agreements um, by radical uh, fundamentalist Islamists who don't want to see Israel there whatsoever. They that's they won't sell it for that. You know, Yasser Arafat was definitely against that in 2000. And until there is that de-escalation of that ideology, we won't you know get to peace. So that's kind of a small summary of it all. Um, there's definitely a lot more details I can get into, especially on the language that people use. Uh, but I just want um, that to be the, the main focus is, is thinking about the libertarian solution toward restitution, property rights, and things like that. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Jack. Jacob, I'm going to let all right. you have your 10 minutes. And, uh, and then we're going to be followed by some uh, Did I Hear You Right segment. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. So the question that we are answering today and centering our discussion around is what the libertarian libertarian response should be towards the war in Gaza. We as libertarians value property rights and voluntary interactions. I think to go further, uh, oh, sorry, uh, war and statism are forces that violate property rights and voluntary interactions. I think to go further, we should always strive to understand what forces are driving both wars and the generation and sustainment of states. Uh, we're all, I think, ANCAPs here, so we were in agreement there. Uh, we should understand from a Misesian or Austrian you know, economic sense that when states act in the economy, it creates distortions in the market. When it uses military uh, op force or military operations in ways that don't adhere to the non-aggression principle, respecting self-ownership and rejecting the initiation of force as a violation of the former, it similarly creates distortions in the market of human relationships. These distortions create bubbles that burst in similar ways to when, you know, what happens when the market crashes with economic interventions. We often label these bursting bubbles uh, when people push back predictably against state military operations, blowback. This was one of the lessons that Ron Paul taught us and woke many Americans up to the truth of America's involvement in the Middle East for decades, which led to September 11th, which was the blowback of America's uh, continual presence and in, in, in interventions in the Middle East. So my contention is that the situation in Israel isn't fundamentally different. Uh, it's a situation of historical aggressions by often state actors that led to a tipping point where violence escalated from the victims blowback as I've described it. There's usually no issue when applying these principles to the American government and its military operations and foreign policy, at least within libertarian circles, we all generally agree on this. However, there is a decent number of libertarians who have reservations about applying this framework to Israel or who believe that many of the criticisms of Israel historically and in this current conflict are either overstating the case uh, of, of state aggression understating the violence or the responsibility of the Palestinians or Hamas or other actors in the Middle East, or, and I've heard Jack say this in some of the podcasts I've, I've heard uh, heard from him uh, when he's talking about this subject, believe that some of us in the libertarian movement are not applying an actual libertarian framework when we're criticizing Israel, but that we're being influenced by either like a leftist or Marxist or some fundamentally anti-Western framework rather rather than, you know, property rights and, and not aggression principle. Uh, Jack's been, you know, pretty critical, I think, of uh, people at the Libertarian Institute, Antiwar.com, other prominent uh, voices in the movement as well, kind of launching th those criticisms. If I were, I know we're going to do this later, but I already had this in my intro. If I were to steel man jack's arguments as i read and heard them 
Um, it's all of what I said above. And to add to that, his position is that while Israel has a state and all states violate liberty and individual rights, too many libertarians are making Israel out to be a great evil force in the world or the greatest force of evil in the world while providing cover to the evils present in extremist uh, Islamic groups and countries. So I, I disagree with Jack, assuming I've characterized his positions, positions accurately and we're, we'll find out when we get to the, the, the nice little uh, uh, to part of the discussion that Doug has planned for us. Um, but I'm going to go on uh, what I believe is true and that I think does adhere to libertarian uh, principles and, and, uh, and ethics. So I got three main points here. Uh, the first point would be what history shows us is that Israel and Zionists have been the overall, doesn't mean that in 100% of situations they are, but it, the overall uh, initiators of aggression uh, and thus the, the, the ones who are, you know, causing blowback, and that this cycle can be traced through the events preceding and then following October 7th. Even living, leaving the history aside, like we could, because we could go back and forth on the history all day long, and that might not necessarily be the focus of this conversation, although I'm happy to talk about history, but there's just so much to cover. It, it, it could, you know, we could do four or five, 10 hours or more on that. But even just focusing on the recent history of present day paints a bad picture for the state of Israel, as it seems to demonstrate that October 7th was blowback for specific policies of the Netanyahu administration, and that these, these policies were simultaneously enforcing what I would call concentration camp-like conditions in Gaza, while intentionally empowering Hamas to stay in power and to halt progress towards peace. And then my third point is that Israel is assisted largely by the United States government, and the uh, state of Israel's influence over United States politics has a lot to do with uh, the, the violence and the wars going on in the Middle East uh, and elsewhere, both in the past and today. And so it makes perfect sense for libertarians to give Israel special attention and criticism while still calling out those other conflicts and acts of aggression going on in the world. So let's go po point by point here. Uh, the first point with the history, again, I'm going to try to breeze through this. Uh, Jack gave his um, you know, a little summary of the history there. There was parts that I agreed with, parts I disagreed with. Um, you know, certainly Zionism was born of, you know, a reaction to anti-Semitism and pogroms going on uh, often in Eastern Europe, but even in Western Europe, uh, they were, you know, there, there were, you know, tensions and things, uh, places that they thought they were safe that they ended up not being. And so, there, there, again, we could, there's a lot there, but we're going to skim over that. Um, you know, if we, if we go past the uh, late 1800s and go to uh, the early 1900s and we talk about you know tr tracking through world war one world war two and into the creation of uh israel today i think what we find if we look at all that is that there was these different factions within zionism there were practical zionists there were moderate zionists uh and there were more radical zionists and i think that over time uh what what, what i see when i look at you know, what's reported throughout history is that the radical Zionists over time won the soul of, of Zionism. Uh, and, they, and they became the, the primary leaders and movers in, uh, in the Zionist movement. And these radical Zionists from the beginning and only becoming more committed with time were devoted to an exclusive Jewish state in Palestine or Israel proper as we know it today. This was exacerbated by a lot of things, by the Balfour Declaration and Britain making more promises than they could ever keep during World War One, promising the Arabs independence and never delivering on it. You have evidence of Zionists instigating tensions uh, in the uh, Nebi Musa report, for example, uh, 
and and to be fair, there were times that the Arabs committed violence too. Uh, but I think again, we, looking at that cycle of uh, of blowback and whatnot, uh, people coming in. I think we have to contest contextualize that. Not that they're angels, but they're they're reacting to human incentives. Um, by 1944 through 1947, then uh, the Zionists have built up militias and they've already begun re revolting against Britain. Uh, to say that the Palestinians just left and were weren't forced out, I think is a historical. And and certainly many have traceable property right claims that were violated after the establishment of the state of Israel and then taking of more territory in 67. We can see, and there are quotes galore from Israeli officials themselves, and I, I have a lot of them on hand if we want to get into that later in the debate. Um, but a lot of quotes, you know, show that the intention was to push these people out to create their majority Jewish uh, ethnic state. Uh, that they didn't kick all the Arabs out. Uh, I think that wasn't for a lack of trying and, and a desire to, to do so on the hack, on, on behalf of the, the Zionist leaders. Um, I'll end there on the history. I'm sure later in the conversation we might go back and forth on a few of these things. Um, like I said, I don't think it's even necessary to you know win on just the history, but I think understanding some of this history is important and gives some context to some of the feelings that I think the Palestinians have towards Israel. Uh, but my second point, and I'm going to spend a, a lot of my time here. The the recent history to present day still paints a bad picture for the state of Israel. It, and it seems easy to demonstrate that October 7th was blowback for the specific policies of the Netanyahu administration. And these policies were simultaneously in, enforcing what I would call like concentration camp like conditions in Gaza, while intentionally empowering Hamas to stay in power to halt progress towards peace. This claim is best supported by a piece that Scott Horton and Connor Freeman wrote on antiwar.com entitled Netanyahu Support for Hamas Backfired. Uh, to, to summarize everything here, a, a staggering number of human rights organizations have described Gaza as being like a concentration camp or open air prison since the end of the 67 war. I know Jack has disagreements with that language. We can talk about that later. Uh, since then, the Palestinians have been denied having their own sovereignty or being included in some kind of, you know, universal state or binational state with equal rights being guaranteed and protected uh, in, in all these different territories. What's worse is that we know that Hamas's creation was assisted by Israel and the state of Israel, and then Hamas was put into power largely by the actions of the state of Israel and the, and the United States as well. Well, why is that? Israel has historically used Hamas to counterbalance the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and to prevent the unification of Palestinian territories under a more moderate leadership. Initially, Israel supported Hamas to dilute the PLL's influence. PLL is a little bit more uh, secular, a little bit less in, in the you know religious extremist territory. Uh, although in the past, PLOs committed terrorism and things like that. Uh, they've they've become much more you know moderate as time goes on. Uh, you know, being being willing to go back to sixty-seven borders and things like that. Um, but so Israel supported Hamas to dilute the PLO's influence. Uh, they provided indirect financial support and. Uh, and then they were allowing the establishment of institutions that later became extremist hubs. This strategy was aimed at dividing Palestinian support and maintaining control over the peace process by ensuring that no viable partner for peace negotiations emerged from the Palestinian side, specifically in, uh, in Gaza. CIA officials confirmed this, and this is also bolstered by the fact that Bibi himself, by Bibi, I mean uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, 
as well as other Israeli officials, have been quoted as saying that they supported Hamas for the purpose of dividing the Palestinians and opposing efforts aimed at peace or a Palestinian state. After Camp David 2000 failed and the second intifada happened, which was largely kind of a result of that failure, Likud, Prime, uh, Likud Party Prime Minister Ariel Sharon initiated a policy known as disengagement in the Gaza Strip. Many point to this and they're like, see, they ended the occupation in 2005. It's really not that simple. Uh, I mean, Israel did remove a lot of, you know, thousands of settlers and their military forces from being there in Gaza. However, the Israeli army was redeployed in the areas surrounding Gaza. And the goal here wasn't peace. It was to kill the peace process and with it any hopes the Palestinians had for a future state. Sharon's senior advisor, uh, Dov uh, Weissglass, said the significance of the disengagement plan is the freezing of the peace process. And when you freeze the that process, you prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state, and you prevent a discussion on the refugees, the borders, and Jerusalem. Effectively, this whole package called the Palestinian state, with all that it entails, has been removed indefinitely from, from our agenda. On all this, with a U.S. presidential blessing and the ratification of both houses of Congress, uh, you know, we, we, we have their support. This disengagement is actually for formaldehyde. It supplies the amount of formaldehyde that is necessary so that there will not be a political process with the Palestinians. The disengagement plan makes it possible for Israel to park conveniently in an interim situation that distances us as far as possible from political pressure. It legitimizes our contention that there is no negotiating with the Palestinians. We educated the world to understand that there is no one to talk to. One, there is no we have a we have a no one to talk to certificate. And that certificate says, one, there's no one to talk to. As long as there, two, as long as there's no one to talk to, the geographic status quo remains intact. And three, the certificate will only be revoked when this and this happens, when Palestine becomes Finland. See you then and shalom. Military Intelligence Director uh, Amas Yadlin commented in, on June 13, 2007, that Israel would be happy if Hamas took over Gaza because the IDF could then deal with Gaza as a hostile state. He also dismissed Iran's influence over Hamas. Interesting, inter interestingly, as long as they don't have a port, he said, it's something Israel can handle. There's evidence that Israel and the U.S. helped or contribute to Hamas winning the 2006 elections, uh, in which they then seized control over the Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip. And then it's just well-known fact, despite you know official denials of this, that Netanyahu continually worked to make sure money could be funneled into Gaza to support Hamas specifically. If Hamas was so bad, couldn't Israel, and uh, this is a question I want you to ask, if Hamas is so bad, why didn't Israel and the U.S. push for another election? Condoleezza Rice insisted on these elections. Hamas takes over, and it's clear this was the goal. Uh, there are more quotes, again, supporting this claim that this was the strategy of the Likud and, and Bibi himself. So this is a quote from Netanyahu. Anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. It is impossible to reach an agreement with them. Everyone knows this, but we control the height of the flames. Well, I would say they did not control the height of the flames, and October 7th is just blowback for this policy. I have a lot of other quotes supporting this that I could go through. Uh, I'm going to skip over this for now. We can go back to them later if Jack wants to hear some more of them or if the audience wants to. 
Keeping all this in mind, there were escalations of violence from Israel uh, in Gaza and in the West Bank leading up to October 7th. The Abraham Accords were a major factor because it was essentially you know, bribing the Arab nations to make peace with Israel in spite of what Israel was doing with the Palestinians. I can provide more on that later if it comes up. October 7th comes, Hamas launches its attack. Now keep in mind, Israel, and this has come out recently too, uh, Israel has been warned for over a year now through Egypt and others that uh, Hamas is planning something. We can touch on more of that later. I have. I, I want to make this clear. I have no issue condemning Hamas's attack. I actually, I, I, I'm in a very similar similar situation to Jack. Uh, my dad was for most of his life a, a Messianic Jew or converted Jew. Most of my family is Jewish. My grandmother spent years in Israel and whatnot, and so I grew up in a very you know Zionist pro-Israel uh, you know household. Um, I don't hate Israel, don't hate its people. Uh, as a libertarian, I abhor violence. And so, you know, Hamas's actions were horrible. And I'm not here to provide cover for Hamas one bit. In fact, I'll say this, for peace to be achieved, Hamas has to go. But so do the Likud and the radical Zionists. Hamas's actions must be condemned and understood as blowback from a desperate and occupied people. And as much as we condemn Hamas, we ought to at least just as much, if not possibly more, condemn the IDF. As bad as October 7th was, there was some haze of war and some propaganda and outrage porn going uh, around re regarding the events of that day. And as more facts get reported, certain narratives need to be dropped or amended. We should we should only report on what, what is true, what can be established with evidence. Uh, you know, many of the Israeli civilians and soldiers who died that day were not killed by Hamas, but by Israeli forces themselves, both as a result of friendly fire and a controversial military policy known as the Hannibal Directive. This policy dictates that it's better for Israel to kill its own soldiers or civilians rather than allow an enemy to take them captive. captive. In addition to that, Israeli forces used heavy weapons, including attack helicopters, tanks, armed drones, uh, to bomb military bases and residential homes in which the Hamas fighters had barricaded themselves and killed the fighters, killed the soldiers, killed the civilians in the process. Uh, according to a list of victims compiled by the Israeli newspaper Haratz, uh, uh, I always forget how to pronounce it, uh, the, the, the numbers they have are 792 Israeli civilians, 59 police, and 368 soldiers were killed during the fighting on October 7th and subsequent days. Now, to determine how many were killed by Israel and Hamas, that's going to take a really you know, detailed investigation. And there are a lot of obstacles to that. So it's going to be hard for us to have uh, you know, official numbers. And we can get into some of that if that comes up later. I'm trying to uh, come to a close here. Uh, you know, th there was other things about the uh, what happened October 7th claims about a lot of mass rapes and deep beheading babies. All of this has been largely debunked. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence for this, which I can bring up if, if these are things that Jack wants to talk about or, or disagree with. Um, but but the but the numbers and the data just don't don't support a lot of <laughs> a, a, a lot of those claims. And again, this is what happens a lot of times when when there's major outbreaks of war and violence. There's a little haze, a little bit of you know wartime propaganda, sensationalism, and we need to cut through that. It's still bad enough that you know over a thousand people died. Uh, and Hamas is certainly responsible for a lot of them, but we do need to be make sure that we're re reacting to and looking at uh, what the truth is. But what of the Israeli response? Since October 7th, most estimates are reaching close to 30,000 killed, mostly civilians, and over 12,000 of those being children. 
U.S. officials such as Barbara Leaf have even suggested that the numbers are likely higher than what's being reported. I know some want to obfuscate these numbers. Um, I don't think that that's an argument that can be taken seriously to say that these are coming from Hamas. I mean, the the Palestinian health ministry, uh, it's not accurate to describe them as Hamas or entirely uh, Hamas controlled. Hamas is sort of like the governing, you know, uh, entity in the uh, in the Gaza Strip uh, to some extent. But again, it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. The Palestinian Health Ministry also tracks like all the you reports, all the births and stuff, and you reports these birth certificates to the Israeli government and stuff. Uh, and you know, historically, independent groups who have gone back uh, throughout the years to do third-party reporting have never found wild discrepancies with what's being reported by the Palestinian Health Ministry. So even if the numbers were off by a certain amount, to pretend it's off by enough to change the narrative, uh, I, I just think is not a serious argument. Listen, we as libertarians believe in peace and justice. Israel's government, I think it's clear, is not in pursuit of either. And they are responsible for a disproportionate amount of the violence and for propping up circumstances, borders, and leaders in Israel and Gaza, which have violated people's rights and worse. The Israeli civilians are innocent, but their government, and especially the Likud and the extreme Zionists, are clearly not. So then, last point here, why do I, you know, why are we quote-unquote, focusing disproportionately on Israel, or is that even accurate? I would say that many on my my side are not disproportionately attacking Israel, but it depends on what you define as proportionate. Do all conflicts deserve equal time? I've done many podcasts and foreign events. I've spent time talking about Ukraine and Russia uh, and China, not just Israel. I think that's true for the entire movement. Dave Smith literally became a meme for, for, for years because every time he was on his show or the Joe Reagan, Rogan experience or anything, all he would talk about is Yemen, right? So, I mean, it, it's not like all we ever do is talk about Israel. I will grant that Israel gets a lot of attention, but I think this is warranted. Israel's role in affecting American policy is hard to overstate. It's pretty clear that many U.S. interventions, such as Iraq War II, were committed in part because of Israeli influence. Israel has received historically a disproportionate amount of U.S. foreign aid. Israel and Zionism are sacred cows of the media and establishment. Uh, with that said, while attention is given uh, to, to other governments and abuses and mass murders around the world, there's plenty of good reason to give Israel a little extra pushback and scrutiny. I don't want to be hyperbolic. I'm not here to, uh, to attack Jack or make any characterizations about him. But I do think that the mass murder of Palestinians in Gaza is one of the most, if not the most worst, worst things going on in the world today. It's one of the most egregious violations of human rights, property rights, and human life. And it's being perpetrated by multiple states who are now combi- who combined are the most violent governments that exist today and have been that way for a while. In many ways, Israel is an extension of American imperialism and domination uh, around the globe. And so, um, you know, I think, I think we're libertarians here. I think everything I said is in the context of libertarian ethics and philosophy that states violate property rights, states violate uh, self-ownership, the not-aggression principle. These things lead to blowback, and we need to deal with them. All right. Thank you, Jacob. That was... uh... You didn't quite stay within the time. I hope the war in Israel lasts uh, <laughs> uh, a little shorter than uh, the time, the amount of time you went over. <laughs> so, Jack, you're going to get a little bit of extra effort here, or get a little extra attention. Oh, but, uh, I... <laughs> uh, man, sorry, I, I I can't help but uh, j- joke about that with you, J- about that, Jacob. Um, <clears throat> in any case, um, so um, 
Yeah, well, what I want to do is uh, something that not a lot of moderators do, which is uh, I want to make sure that each of you heard each other correctly, and it's the steel man. And Jacob, you kind of did that a little bit uh, with Jackson. I know you guys have been engaging on social media. Um, if uh, if So what we're going to do is I'm going to give Jack an opportunity to sort of summarize what he heard Jacob say. Um, Jacob, you just give an affirmative. Yeah, Jack, you understand my, you know, you understand it, or you can offer a, a form of clarification. Uh so you okay? So you just want me to summarize his point because he made a lot of points. Well, no, he did. I would say if you could summarize his argument to make sure they, like, yeah. we know you well, know what he's saying. Rather than just argument. It's just that Israel is worthy of critique, and he finds it egregious enough that it should be worthy of a focus. That's that's the main thing because he didn't make any specific policy recommendations. There was no particular outcome um, that he stated. Okay, um, there was a lot, and I do actually have a lot to say about um, that in kind about the the history and the framing. Sure. Um, that's okay. Okay. Uh, why, uh, if I were to ask, why do you think he focuses so much heavily on some of the, some of the more recent data, the blowback situation, et cetera, and why it's unique? Like, what drives that in your mind? Drives his focus? Yeah, on that as a libertarian. Oh, I can't speak for what's inside his head. I, the only thing that's outside circumstantial is just that it's whatever's in the the media and the news cycle, right? Okay. If, if it's bleeds, it leads. So it's if you're you know seeing the mainstream news, all these other war reporters follow whatever's there. I mean, they, they're they're commenting based on that. It's not weird. Just like Ukraine was five minutes ago, half a million dead in the official sources, um, and okay, and that's last month's statistic. I mean, that, that's pretty much it. Um, okay. I'd love to address the specifics of of Israel and framings too. Yeah. Okay. Jacob, how do you feel about the, uh, the the overall summary? Yeah, I mean, I guess Jack's a little disappointed I didn't give a specific policy prescription. I mean, I think uh, we're here to talk about what the response is, which I guess, uh, you know, we could offer a solution. But I mean, that's complicated, right? I mean, the solution I think we would agree on, which the solution is people should stop violating the non-aggression principle and stop violating mm -hmm. uh, people's rights. Uh, states, states should be abolished, right? We're both, we're, we're all ANCAPs here. So, you know, how do we get there? I mean, you know, that that's a conversation we could have, but I think part of being able to even have that conversation is uh, understanding how we got here. And if we don't understand okay. and agree how we got here, we won't get much past that. Um, but, you know, I, I do think his summary in terms of like that, I, you know, I, you know, yes, I think that there's a, a lot of things that have happened and Israel uh, is worthy of critique. Um, and so he was correct in stating that that is my uh, my position. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, how would you summarize Jack's position? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Jack uh, sees if I were to uh, summarize a lot of where Jack is coming from, from what he said, I think he sees so much of what is good in Israel in terms of like the people, right? The culture, the society, uh, being connected to, you know, Jewish roots and ancestry and culture. Uh, listen, I find value in that too, as a, as a, uh, descendant of the tribe, <laughs> uh, as it, as it, as it were. Um, I'm, I, I grew up with my, my, uh, my bubby, no, it was Yiddish for grandmother. So my, my bubby lived with us. She spent many years in Israel and would come back and she would do uh, Hanukkah with us. I remember doing the, the feasts and whatnot. Uh, my dad, uh, uh, you know, was a, he didn't call himself a Messianic Jew, but he was a converted Jew and still, you know, observed a lot of his, his Jewish roots and uh, was a, was a pastor of sorts who always spoke about 
you know, Christian things from in a way that would like connect them to their Jewish roots and, and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, I, I very much think that Jack sees a lot of the positives there. And I think, although he acknowledges that the, uh, the government there is, is, is like any government and, and does bad things. Um, he thinks that people might be uh, focusing so much on their criticisms of, of Israel that they're making, you know, Israel entirely, not just the state out to be this boogeyman, you know, uh, you know, conflating all, all the Jewish people with, with, with maybe the worst parts of Zionism or, or people are mischaracterizing Zionism and that people are, you know, and I think the other parts of what he said were that people are misunderstanding the history, that they think it's just kind of like, you know, colonialism. And he did acknowledge that, you know, some bad things happened, but it's not unique to any other, you know, country. And so, um, you know, why would people be talking so much about that when they don't have the same sort of outrage about other situations? So yeah. I think that's uh, a summary of what he said. Yeah, Jack, how, did, did that uh, sort of comport with what you think you were saying? Did Jacob do it right? Yeah, yeah. Generally, that, that's that's some of them. I do have a bit more because there is something very specific okay. that I want to get to. That, that's that's actually at the root. Well, um, I think I think we owe you a few more minutes on the timer, so I'll I'll, I'll give you the <laughs> floor a little bit to, to start that. Count. What's that? <laughs> I said at least fifteen by my count. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I have it at uh, yeah eleven <laughs> over is what he went, but uh, okay. I'm counting. So yeah. All right. So I want to get. Um, knee deep here because I want to demystify some of these myths about the history. And we're going to actually dive in on some of these things that are often promoted in the mainstream by Scott Horton and the like LCI and others. And some of it you actually even brought up, but you skimmed over it in such a way that um, I don't think people picked up on it. But um, we're going to take a look right back to 1949, right? So when people talk about um, what's going on in Gaza and the horrific things there, right? The uh, this place, the, the actually the geography of Gaza used to actually be controlled by Egypt um, back, you know, when it was uh, named differently, you know, under the uh, the Arab Republic, right? So they actually had military rule over there in '49 and really picked up in '59 to '67. And during that military rule, they actually had the restrictions on the Palestinian people there, and it was so strong with their curfews that actually is what led to half a million of them going on welfare dependency. So when you think about the incentives and economics and people are talking about Israel, people ignore the other things that are going on around in this situation because it was actually Egypt that put these people into a permanent welfare dependency through the UNRWA, which is a permanent refugee aid organization that nobody else in the world has. Nobody else in the world has permanent refugee status forever. It's like once you're settled, that's it. You're no longer a refugee. They were given permanent status. And that welfareism, those entrenched incentives actually came from Egypt ruling, not from Israel, technically, actually from Egypt. And people don't know this history. And so when that kept on going, you had a permanent dependent class. And today, 30,000 people are employed by this organization. And it's not surprising anybody in any other welfare, you know, conceptualization of any other state and be like, oh, yeah, you're creating a dependent class and this government welfare would be like, oh, OK, that's. That's obvious, right? You create a class of dependents and they're going to become dependent on aid forever, right? Because, oh, okay, they're going to shut them off everything. So when people are talking about, you know, these situations, these areas, they definitely ignore the rest of what's going on, right? So as you can see here, the Rafah border is controlled by Egypt. Israel, of course, you know, manages the other side. Um, but when people are talking about being imprisoned uh, in, in this situation, they're missing that it's actually just borders, 
And that's uncomfortable for people who are thinking about this because if they realize that, oh my gosh, wait, this is just strong borders, checkpoints, people can't go and freely move about and trade, right? Then suddenly that's going to come back against people who are really into borders. The open air prison is actually a distraction from that. And even though Israel does terrible things where they send a military, they might shoot people, they've had curfews depending on the time and most certainly have been brutal. So I, I don't deny that. But when people talk about open air prison, they ignore the fact that there's actually tunnels that went all underneath there with the whole human shield top surface population. And people would actually get supplies and guns and stuff like that from these underground tunnels. And Egypt cracked down a little bit in 2013, but they still get it through, obviously. Obviously, Hamas uh, managed to get quite a few rockets and machine guns to kill over a thousand people. So when we're talking about these situations, language can obfuscate reality. Sure, it's brutal inside there for some people, but is it really about being a prison or is it really actually strong borders because they're not citizens? And so, like citizens of other countries, you can't just freely cross a border. So that obfuscation language is a really important food for thought process when it comes to this. Now, with that strong border that people don't really think about, a lot of people say Israel created Hamas, right? So when it comes to this concept, I like to actually read the accounts of someone who actually was a part of Hamas. This is Masab Hassan Youssef, who is one of the seven co-founders of Hamas. He's uh, sorry, his, his, he's the son of one of the seven co-founders of Hamas. He actually lived through it and eventually became a Christian. And we're on the Libertarian Christian Institute. So I think it's very important to uh, bring in a, a Christian who rejected his upbringing, and he actually talked about the brutality of what went down in the area and was able to speak to it in such a special way. He was able to encapsulate that the psychology of the people it, through Hamas was about radical Islam and about a death culture. And he doesn't glamorize the, the IDF either. He admits the IDF can be brutal. They have brutal prisons for, for torture when they're trying to find out who's a terrorist agent. But he himself came to this conclusion that fundamentally, this is a battle of ideas. And the battle of ideas here is that, unfortunately, for people in um, Gaza, there is a political leadership that does not care about them. And so when you see the stories of kids being killed and stuff like that, they're being pushed out intentionally in front of these soldiers, being told to throw rocks and being told to do you know, whatever it is to try to get a reaction because they don't care if their kids die. They just, they don't, they're trained to say, hey, if you die for Allah, you're going to go to heaven and you will be, you know, greatly rewarded. That is a psychological backdrop that exists. And that's not something that is, you know, just made up. This is a deep history. This Islamic jihad, again, it's not every single Muslim wants to do this outright, but it is certainly a part of that fundamentalist radical Islam. And if you miss that part of the equation, then you miss this whole battle with the Zionism and, and, and the fundamentalist um, uh, Islamic mentality. And if you miss that, then you're not really getting to any solutions anyway, because you have to be able to see that people need to exit that. They need to love their neighbor as themselves. Then you say, hey, we, it's, it's not right to go and sacrifice your, your sons and go have them blow themselves up on a bus and to, you know, tit for tat, kill people and mass murder people. And the blowback language, while certainly relevant for a political context, misses the core psychology of a death cult that continues to foster this blowback and tit for tat stuff with Israel. And again, Israel has their part too in it. But this idea that, oh, it's just their fault, that Israel just like, you know, constructed them all is total nonsense. It's actually, it's hilarious. He even he debunks that himself in here too. 
And again, he lived it and he, he eventually fled to the U.S. He became a Christian. So this narrative is, is bunk. And in fact, not only is it bunk, but one of the people that actually people refer to when they're talking about this is Abner Cohen. And he was a former Israeli security agent. And in 2009, in the Wall Street Journal, he did this op-ed thing where he talked about specifically what it was that the Israeli government was doing. So when you're saying, oh, Israel support Hamas of that, what, what do they mean by that? Do they mean Israel was like, here's a bunch of rockets and a bunch of machine guns, go and kill some Jewish kids today? No, <laughs> this is the, the crazy part. It meant that they just said, we'll let you build mosques and schools and Islamic university. And if you want to set up a charity, fine, right? They let in money for Qatar and Iran. So in other words, the Israeli government was just like, oh, here's some money coming in. It's going to go Hamas. Should we take it by force? No, we'll let it in. Okay. Oh, here's some people saying they want to come study Islamic University. They could be training for terrorism. Okay, well, just let them in. So you have this kind of funny thing, right? Where on one hand, like, this is an open-air prison. Oh, but wait, it's because the Israeli government's controlling them. But wait, they allowed them to build schools and they allowed them to build training centers. And, oh, but you're supporting Hamas by allowing them to do the things that you say, oh, if they can't do that, now it's a prison. The hypocrisy is kind of crazy when you think about the mental gymnastics, right? On one hand, oh, Israel's controlling them, but then they just are like, well, we'll let you just build your, your organization, your religious organization. We'll, we'll let you get money from other countries, eh, whatever. So they're missing this whole context that the support for the radicals existed outside. It came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, and it came in response to people being just kind of frustrated with people's rejection of, of Islam. It's almost like a, you know, a revivalist movement or, you know, temperance movement kind of thing that happened over there. So this fervency about the situation, um, you know, is, is something that has to be taken into account, right? Statism is a problem on both sides. And I, I want to actually uh, mention something that, you know, he said in his, um, in a speech recently that, that is, uh, Mossad Hassan Youssef said, I, I just found it very powerful. He said, what do the Palestinian people need? They don't need a Hamas, a terrorist organization of savages that ignite a war in order for them to cultivate wealth, power, and territory, etc. They don't care for the people. What do people need? They don't even need a state. What do we need? We need to build a nation. And I've said this many times, Hamas is fighting for a state, statehood. Palestinian Authority was fighting for statehood. Yasser Arafat was fighting for a state. Everybody fighting for a state. But no one's investing any effort to build a nation. You know why? Because building a nation requires selfless leadership. A model like Gandhi, that would drop all the personal gain in order to build a nation. I am not a sheep and I am not a shepherd. I'm just an individual enough unto my own. Those who want the state want the state because the state comes with power. With a nation comes lots of work and responsibility. They don't want that. They want the fruit, but they don't want the effort. I don't want to even think about a Palestinian state. I don't care for a Palestinian state. We have 22 Arab states, and all of them are garbage. So this man, who did not become you know, Jewish, he became Christian, he eventually left and, and did some operations with IDF, basically secretly reporting and looking and seeing what Hamas was doing, came to his own conclusions, and he saw for himself that there was a death cult culture within the area and that people were all too willing to murder themselves and murder other innocents, creating a perpetual cycle of blowback. And so why I want to bring that together here is because we're here on the Libertarian Christian Institute. If I'm not bringing it back to some of those issues, you know, what are we doing, right? So he is saying that the, the psychology of not having a Christ-like attitude that underpinned Islam there has been a major 
part of this. It's not just simply, oh, well, they're just sad about their kids dying, this, that. They're putting their kids out there and saying, shoot our kids. We don't care. We want a state. And even when you mentioned, like, for example, Yasser Arafat and the 2000 Accords, right? This is what's left out of that commentary. Uh, the offer was that there would be a demilitarized Palestine, a Palestinian state on some 92% of the West Bank, 100% of the Gaza Strip. And then there would be a dismantling of the settlements and the concentration of the bulk of the settlers inside the 8% of the West Bank to be annexed by Israel. So there is this, this move to actually create a Palestinian state and to give East Jerusalem the capital as a Palestinian state. What did Arafat say? No. He said, I'm not going to do any of this. He wanted power. He wanted to rule and he wanted Israel wiped off the map. He wanted the Jews gone and dead. And so people who downplay these things are deceiving others about the nature of these things. They have this whole psychology that moral agency can never be grounded in people who are suffering any type of conflict or, or this or that, right? There's this sudden idea that, well, if they were you know, historically harmed, then they're justified in sending their kids to go be blown up to bits. That's not a libertarian psychology. A libertarian psychology says, no, you shouldn't go and have your children murdered. You shouldn't go and have them and encourage them to go blow themselves up in a, in a a school bus or in, a, in front of a, a movie theater and to kill innocent people, you know? So you can't sit there and have this two-way psychology. You have to be able to critique both. And if you're on the Christian Institute here, that should be obvious. Jews and Muslims need the message of the gospel and to think outside of violence because turning the other cheek here would do a whole lot of good for people having peace. And if you care about children not dying, that is most certainly the ethic you want to be promoting, not just simply, you know, pushing down, you know, whatever, de-escalating with things with the state, but saying, okay, what are the cultural things that are going on? What is at the root? And if you do not deal with that and you do not recognize that that is also a problem, then you're missing the total picture and that total picture is is definitely missed time and again uh, you know for example i would think another uh, quick one was um the uh, suez uh, crisis and with egypt controlling uh, the waterways right people will say oh well if egypt nationalizes the waterway or stops transport and causes a blockade well israel deserves it right that's that's another one of these misframings if you say oh well other people a, a blockade or embargoes that's an act of war but if you do it to jews eh if you have like, for example, Dariusine, right? Jews, 100,000 of them in Jerusalem were being starved to death by Arabs who were blocking it. They literally created a blockade, starving to death 100,000 people. Nobody cares about that. Hmm. They, don't, they don't care about that history. They're just like, oh, okay, Dariusine, they try to capture that to stop the blockade. They're trying to stop people who had arms and who were you know, shooting um, Jewish convoys and food coming in. So I'm here to bring in some of that bigger picture thinking and some of these other framings, because again, it, you get people who skirt by it without thinking much about it, right? They'll say, well, you can't trust the CIA. You can't trust Israel, except when the CIA and Israel agrees with what I believe, right? And then we just heard that, hey, appeal to, you know, authority about or appeal to just the, the generalization of, of, of personal incredulity, right? Oh, the CIA, how could they be lying about this? Israeli government, how could they be lying? Oh, well, because it fits your narrative. So then they're telling the truth. And it's, it's just something to catch, right? Because the people that often others are relying on, they haven't been to Israel. They haven't been to any of these places. They're doing on the ground reporting. So that's why I prefer to look at direct sources, people who lived it. And I highly recommend picking up Son of Hamas to get a start to thinking about this because you want to have something of someone who actually grew up there, lived it, and seen both sides, both the Hamas side and the Israel side. 
So definitely expand your thinking and don't lose sight of the fact that you have, this is a battle of ideas. At the end of the day, it's a battle of ideas. We need to change minds for liberty and for peace. All right. Thank you guys. Um, this is uh, this has been enlightening. I feel like I've I've been through a whirlwind of data and statistics and whew, well, uh, Jack, I really appreciate. Um, at, I'm gonna we're gonna kind of switch to uh, a bit of conversation um, and Q and A. I'm gonna ask a few questions and then we can also um, you guys can sort of ask each question questions of each other and rebut against each other for a little bit here. Um, and for those who are watching live, uh, you're welcome to to send in some questions uh, for either of us. Uh, over either the, the the either Jacob or Jack there um, and uh, let me just uh, frame out a few things so I'm, I'm, I'm I want to bring this back like what you did Jack with uh, with the fact that we are the Libertarian Christian Institute and we have a great interest in the Jewish people for a handful of reasons uh, not least of which is you know the heritage of the two of you uh, as well as you know the Christian the, the Christian piece the, the relationship piece um, you know we as Americans just the foreign policy connection with Israel is also um, a, an, an important thing whether we want to identify primarily as Americans or not it's kind of not beside the point but um, the libertarian or the Christian uh, viewpoint, uh, and I want to I want to ask this to both of you. The Christian viewpoint is that we need to de-escalate violence, and I'm hearing Jacob say Israel is probably the like probably can live up to this faster, <laughs> in a way, and should put down its arms and not do what it's doing. That that would be in my way. Uh, hearing Jacob saying, well, Israel can be the first one to say, no, we're not going to escalate the violence. In fact, and, and can even admit that it possibly uh, did. I mean, the state of Israel, the people who are in charge of it, they may not want to be able to see this, even though we can, uh, that they've done things that were antagonistic to those around them, right? Um, the the create blowback situation. So my, my impression of what you're saying, Jacob, is that Israel should be the one to do that. On the libertarian side, we're also against non-aggression. And so, Jack, what I'm hearing you say is um, we all have agency. Hamas has agency. Individuals who live in Gaza, individuals who live in Israel have agency to to stop violence as well. And if I'm hearing you correctly, everyone's asking Jews to put down their guns, but no one's asking anybody else to. Or it seems like that's what is the narrative. And... Um, it, you're nodding. It sounds like I, I, you, I got it right. Jacob, did I, did I analyze yours right? Uh, I mean, it's close enough. I mean, I could nitpick it. <laughs> well, we're libertarians. <laughs> we, we can nitpick everything, right? Well, what, um, I, I guess from a, from a, well, actually more so than just we're all three libertarians here. The two of you are like open anarchists in the sense of like, you believe that a stateless society is a better outcome. And so in some ways, the problem isn't with, it is really with the state of Israel um, as opposed to just the Jews in the Middle East. And, I, and to be clear, I, I tried to, which and it's tough uh, when you're reading stuff and writing, I tried to as much as I could say state of Israel as much yeah. as I can and yeah. distinguish that from, from the Israeli people because it's, it is an important distinction because the people are innocent. Well... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, by and large, in a, in a sense, I mean, obviously, there is complicity, and you deal with all those moral conundrums. But, but there's that. Um, <clears throat> I'm not Bin Laden. Uh, I don't hold I don't hold people accountable for the actions of their government. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I, I guess I want to. I, I guess what I want to, you know, sort of ask both of you is what 
what is and I'll start with you, Jacob, because Jack brought it up and I do kind of get the point of like, well, no, we kind of have to say, well, what what should actually happen? Does this really mean that Israel just literally just puts down its guns and stops and just, you know, what puts up a strong border to keep Hamas from literally, you know, coming into their borders? Like, what is actually what do you want Israel to do other than to stop some of the atrocities that are somewhat sometimes questionable? Uh, I'm sorry, with the reports of which are questionable. Get, uh, um, I think the answer is to uh, give the Palestinian people their their rights and, and their liberty um, and deal with the terrorists like, you know, you sh- people would deal with the terrorists here. Here in America, if we have domestic terrorists, <clears throat> for the most part, what you do is you go and you, you have special op forces and, and you go and you, you, you take out the people committing the violence. You don't, you know, carpet bomb entire uh, city blocks and, and yeah. buildings and and things like that and so i mean the issue is i think um that you know this is one of the worst places to live in the world it's incredibly densely populated um you know i mean i i'm not sure when, when jack was kind of giving his rebuttal you know to, to what i said in terms of describing it as a prison i'm not sure that you know th- there's a huge distinction between kind of you know being imprisoned or being the victim of two nations on either side of you enforcing very strong borders it kind of seems to be a a distinction without a difference i mean um yes there is uh you know it's not a literal prison um they're able to get weapons and and stuff and and, and stuff that's not that much different than, than than actual prisons that happens a lot um the point is never that Gaza was literally identical to a U.S. prison. The point is that they are surrounded, uh, you know, on every inch of their border, and that they are occupied, um, you know, and controlled. Their their area is controlled by both the Israeli government and by Hamas. And, and this is after a long occupation from basically '67 to '05. I'm saying, you know, as Christians, you know, we're told to love our enemy. I'm going to put myself in the shoes of the Palestinians especially the ones who were born into those circumstances and say, you know, who wouldn't uh, be easily radicalized into like a, a uh, you know, a more like Islamic fundamentalist uh, mindset or even just without that, who just wouldn't be uh, incentivized to violently resist those conditions. And, and not that it's right, but we have to understand the power dynamics at play. I don't think that's against libertarian uh you know, ethics or, 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 or principles to say that, uh, you know, we have this tiny strip of land that's kind of run by a terrorist group that the state of Israel allowed to, 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 to run, you know, free in there. And they're being, they, they've been held there by the state for a long time. I agree with what Jack's saying in terms of like, well, these people are caught in idea in like a harmful ideology to a certain extent. And, uh, we should like pray and hope for those people to 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 break free of that, but we have to recognize the the incentives on the ground because of the circumstances that they're raised in. Uh, even you know, I, I I understand the argument that like people have agency, but I mean, I just think we have to be honest with you know imagining how horrific it must be to not only live there, but imagine again being born there. There are people who have never stepped outside of Gaza. Um, and, and so that's what I would say is that, you know, um, yeah. And as far as the solution, you know, end it. Like, I mean, I think a two state solution is just not possible at this point. Um, 
I think the better thing is to say, you know what, like, uh, you know, the, the Jewish supermajority isn't more important than people's rights. And so the, the people living in the West Bank and the people living in Gaza, they need to stop, you know, being forced to live under the occupation uh, of like, you know, you're not sovereign to govern yourselves completely. And also you're not going to have equal rights and you're trapped there. That needs to end. Um, and then people who continue to initiate violence against uh, the Israeli people go after them in a way that is in keeping with in the libertarian understanding of, of, of self-defense, proportionality, things like that. Yeah. Jack, I, I could give you, uh, obviously, a chance to answer my question to both of you, which is, you know, what kind of sort of practical solutions do you have? And you're also welcome to respond to some of the solutions and comments that Jacob Jacob has here. Yeah, I appreciate that. So the thing that I like to think, you know, and focus on, of course, as always, is philosophy. I love thinking about, okay, what is the comparative situation compared to what? Do you apply this consistently? And one of the difficulties that people have to come to terms with is that, well, more people, that is more Jews, were kicked out of Arab countries and pogromed out and persecuted, including places like Iraq, where they were told you can take, you know, three shirts with you, three pants, 50 dinar, you have to get rid of all your stuff, and then you can finally leave. There was more Jews kicked out of the Arab world than there were in the Nakba of, of people who were fleeing because of mostly because of fear, because they were told lies about Jews like raping and killing, you know, pregnant women and stuff like that. So we have this situation where on one hand, people will say, well, maybe there'd be a two-state solution or maybe Israel should adopt them. So then I go, okay, well, does that mean Israel needs the, or all the Jews who are in Israel who are refugees and their descendants, do they get to have restitution in all these countries? Do they get to have repatriation? And do they have a right of self-determination? Does this mean that we get nine satellite Jewish states now? Most of them are going to say, not only is that ridiculous in terms of practicality, but obviously not, right? Jews have been pogromed out of everywhere, and Israel has been the recipient and, and the protector effectively, comparatively. Of course, the Israeli government's actually hurting them in many ways because it's the government, but comparatively, um, for quite a long time, right? So literally all these Jews are, you know, are, are not welcomed really back in those places. In fact, the last uh, two Jews were just not too long ago evacuated out of Afghanistan because the Taliban took over. So we have this situation where people want to play this game of we're going to fix all these historical norms of people who were kicked out and this or that, but they don't really apply it equally. They're not really looking to reset the 20th century. So what I like to focus on, as usual, is just what is a way that maybe there could be something that you have civil protections, civil rights protections, but without getting into all the, the extra problems and, and the, the new struggles of democracy, right? Because that's that's what everybody's scared of. They're scared that if there's a Palestinian state, well, they're going to support Hamas. And oh, great, you're going to have a government whose chief aims is to pillage and suicide bomb, right? Not exactly a, a welcoming idea. Then there's the Jews who are like, if they come in, then they're going to vote for uh, Jews to be destroyed, right? Just like people in America are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe these immigrants are coming across the border. What are they going to vote for, right? Woo. But then all of a sudden over there, they're like, well, we'll ignore we'll ignore that and their concerns because they you know, deserve to have them be in a new democracy where they get overturned, right? It's, it's just kind of playing more status games. I want to exit out of that. I don't think democracy is the solution. I don't think statism is the solution. I do think that there are ways to deal with these things. And again, I'm just talking on the internet. I'm not pretending I have any power over these things. Just food for, for fun is academic. Um, the, you know, there's ways to do things where you can have restitution, right? People who actually were forcibly kicked out of their homes, right? 
um, and that kind of thing, they could be restituted. People could have their homes given back who had, um, you know, settlements or eminent domain, just like in America. I mean, America has, you know, it's funny that in, in Israel, they're like, oh my gosh, these settlers are taking homes. And I'm like, yeah, they call that eminent domain in America, where the government, like, for example, in, in the Florida, kicked out 12,000 uh, black residents of Overton to build I-95, right? But nobody cares, right? They're like, oh, okay, black people were all forced out. Eh, 12,000, who cares? That's old news, <laughs> middle 20th century. Who cares about those people, right? So it, it, there's so many different atrocities around the world that people can't even just like keep up with. So it's just a good reminder to get back and be grounded in reality of you know what's going on. What do you actually have power over? What are we really trying to convince people of? So you know there is that other possibility that when it comes to um, you know restitution things and stuff like that, they could um, do something where they you know if they were willing to, which again doubt, doubtful, but they would just have uh, Egypt have the control of the area or um, Syria, and then you have like a half coverage thing with like East Jerusalem that kind of thing. You know things they talked about before doing. You know when it comes to um, possible ways to carve it up and then they become citizens there i mean personally i think it makes a little bit of sense considering egypt already ruled over gaza that was already a thing and they lost the war a couple times so the losers typically in history pay the restitution you know not that that makes anything you know right or anything like that it's just the reality of that in every other case the losers had to deal with the refugees and that and they were settled and then game over right and then you had some aid agencies that would give people money and help them resettle whatever so you know, there's a lot of different ways that it could be dealt with theoretically, but no, none of these deal with the root issue. They don't deal with the heart changes and they don't deal with the mind changes. And until those things are fixed, you still have a bunch of people who are going to say it doesn't matter what uh, Israel and, and the government does. It doesn't matter if there's restitution. We're going to send in people to go blow people up and keep it going. And other groups are going to fund them. You know, Iran and Hezbollah and other stuff like that. You know, it, it is it is very difficult to fix that type of problem. And it cannot be fixed if the mentality is Israel and Jews don't have a right to exist there at all, right? So you, you can't even have that. You can't even have that if the, if that's the mentality. And again, I'm not saying that's all different people's views there. There's, of course, a diversity of backgrounds and, you know, ethnicities and um, uh, religions and people who are in Gaza, West Bank, that's that kind of thing. But, it, but you have to be realistic about what is most likely when you're talking about, you know, moving forward, if you were to give citizenship and this or that. So, you know, in America, there's... Um, you know, uh, naturalized, or sorry, I should say uh, nationals, um, U.S. nationals, right? They don't vote, but they have civil rights protections. We know people in Washington, D.C., they can't vote for senators, but they have civil rights protections. So, you know, Israel could do something like that, too, moving toward a libertarian order, actually having civil rights protections, um, uh, moving toward them having, uh, you know, their own uh, policing and stuff like that. There's, there's, there's lots of different things. But um, until, you know, that heart change happens, it's just, it's very difficult to move, you know, forward on those things. But no matter what, of course, we should advocate Israel becomes a libertarian order, like everything else, privatized restitution, property rights, free trade, and roads to peace. Jacob, I, I saw you were viscerally groaning <laughs> at a couple points. Um, and, and in fact, it, it happens to be that it was the, one of the points that I was like, well, wait, Jack, the whole eminent domain thing, that is a libertarian critique. Um, and, and you groan, Jacob, I think on it's So like, for, for, well, the many, other for many Americans, it does seem like you're, you're right, Jack. There's a lot of like, oh, well, we can let us oh, just what the government does. But with Israel, it's a really bad thing. Well, hold on. But but no one when when the black people in Florida had their properties taken, they weren't then de deported into a small, you know, geographic landscape and, and told to stay there for 50 
plus years. I don't again, like yeah, Eminem means it's bad, but like That's I just Native don't think it's a comparison. Well, yeah, American. and Native Americans were treated very badly by the American. They're put on reservations where they had military occupation. By the way, that's yeah. a Cherokee. And, Trail of and, Tears, military occupation. They couldn't leave the reservation. So that's what you're describing. Yeah, no one, no one from a libertarian position is defending those things. But at least right now, they want to Native fix the home stuff, though. They don't care about fixing what's at home. They want to fix something six thousand miles away they don't control, but. There's people suffering. Well, no, hold on. Native Americans, by and large, in America, have equal rights and the ability to travel and and to do things and to work and to they're not concerned you know, with the Yeah, they're they're not yeah. stuck. They're, there's not a military on either side keeping them. You know, uh, you know, stuck. I mean, like look at the Walk of Return. Like Native Americans aren't dealing with stuff like that, Jack. I just don't think that these comparisons hold. At, at all um, and, other people who are suffering that's right you'd have to talk about other people who are who are suffering because when that was happening it was suffering people dying on the trails you're like well it's old so they're not suffering anymore they're still displaced no, jack, like jack we can but... jack we can chew bubblegum and walk at the same time yeah. like we can't every time we talk about israel just say but what about all the other bad things that have ever happened and that are happening right now okay jack we do talk about those things literally my last podcast episode is talking about ukraine and russia and actually bringing up the fact that because of Israel, people have kind of put that in the back burner of their minds, and that's not right. But you act like none of us are doing that, and all we're talking about is Israel. I don't think that's true. I'm not uh, acting like that toward you, by the way. That's not my position. Okay, that's me. fine. But I, and maybe you don't think about me, but I don't think that any of us are 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 doing that. But I do think that we're giving Israel uh, it, its due attention because you know of of the disproportionate amount of money it receives and the disproportionate amount of, of influence i think it has over american politics and and, and foreign policy so I, I don't think that these things are now listen I, I want to agree with one of the things you said and i think you also agreed with one of the things that i said but i i'm trying to understand how then we're we're, we're not on the same page I agree with you that even if we change what the states in these regions are doing that's not going to change the culture or the hearts of the people right away. And that that is sort of like the more long term fundamental issue, like, you know, long term, we want to see culture improve and, and hearts change, you know, uh, you know, here at the LCI, we, we want more than that, as you alluded to, we want to see the gospel preached to them. But, you know, it's a little hard to see that cultural change happen, to see hearts be changed, to even go and preach the gospel to people who are living under such violence and 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 oppression um that you, you know so we can't if there are no streets right so i mean I, I just think we have to acknowledge that that reality on the ground now you you said you disagreed with something i said in terms of like what the solutions are but then you sort of ended on saying what i said which is that they should have protected civil rights and equal rights voting isn't a right i never said they had to be given the right to vote that's that's not. I mean, listen, we're anarchists here, right? Uh, democracy is is a spook to to use uh, a crap. Uh, 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 I forget his name. You know what I'm talking about uh, Sterner. To use a Sterner reference, it's a spook, right? Uh, we don't believe in democracy, so I don't care if they can vote, but they should at least not be landlocked and and have their 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 civil liberties denied. And and, and last thing, you compared this to immigration. Well, listen, you and I are actually both more in agreement on the immigration issue. Um, like, you know, I, I'm traditionally more on the, I mean, I listen, we're anarchists. So again, private borders, private property rights, that's, that's the goal. I think that uh, having the state control borders uh, and then restrict travel to a large degree 
does cause a lot of problems. But then it's like you were sort of saying, and maybe, and, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong from what you're saying, but you were almost like, well, you know, what are we supposed to do? Uh, let these people travel here when they can do do violence. So I'm like, well, are you saying America needs open borders, but Israel needs controlled borders? Like, I'm not sure what you're trying to get at there, because it seems like the point you brought up about immigration would apply to my side of the argument to be like, well, no, like if, if we're going to say America shouldn't, you know, even with people panicking about this mass infusion of people here, which listen, there's going to, even though I will usually end up on like the more open side of the equation when it comes to the borders. I think you and I would agree there's still consequences to that. And I'm not saying there wouldn't be consequences to giving the Palestinians the rights, but can't we agree that until that happens, we're not going to make progress on, on any of the other stuff. We can't, we can't collectively punish a group of people because of what some of them might do. do oh yeah. But yeah. Well, the thing is, is that, that that's exactly my point. I'm bringing up these hypocrisies to showcase the hypocrisies. I'm not saying that I hold the hypocrisies. I'm showing common cultural tropes, not necessarily you, of course, because I need to be able to address the broader you know, world. Okay, that's fine. I'm just trying to. I'm yeah, trying I mean, to. I want to describe something to you that you, you don't hold a course not. No, I mean, with what I wrote in my book, A Vision for a Libertarian Future, I actually discuss these types of incrementalisms. Where we're moving away from state control, and those things apply as well to what I'm talking about with Israel and the United States. It doesn't matter where you are; these principles can apply, and those principles are talking specifically about moving toward privatization with concrete, not, you know, oh, net taxpayer battle <clears throat> nonsense, not people fighting in, in democracy, actually having real privatization, actually having real restitution, actually freeing the market and having private defense and things like that. So that's actually what I'm for, for Israel. Some people have different ideas of like, no, the first thing is a two-state solution or, oh, Israel needs to have them all come in, they vote, or, oh, Israel just needs to be erased off the map. Well, you and know? to be clear, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. I don't think Israel should be erased off the map in, in terms of an incremental approach. I think that's that's wrong. I think most of us have, you know, most of us have been on that side. I don't, I don't know anyone from the Libertarian Institute or Antiwar.com or Dave Smith, who's, who's saying Israel needs to be wiped off the face of the map. None of us have said that. Um, now, listen, I don't care if the Palestinians get voting rights. However, I would not, if, if what had to happen in some kind of deal was that they had to be given voting rights, like if that's something they're like, you know, working out and they're not budging on, I don't think that it's fair to be like, you know what? No, we're going to resort back to the status quo because you guys want to vote and we're not going to let you. I think in terms of incrementalism and moving towards more a more libertarian order, uh, it would still be a step in the right direction to stop militarily occupying these people, surrounding them, bombing them, uh, death toll in the, the tens of thousands. Um, I, you know, if the next step from that is equal rights, but, you know, we're increasing democracy temporarily and they're allowed to vote. I don't think that that is uh something that that we should be dying on the hill of or that israel should be dying on the hill of um i i understand from the jewish perspective uh you know listen we you know the jews were pogromed and persecuted and and zionism was largely a response from that but here's another christian principle um and just a, a universal principle we have to understand as, as people as, as libertarians hurt people hurt people 
And and that's true on an individual level, on a psychological level. It's also true on a societal level and a, a political level. And I, I, I think what has unfortunately happened, and it grieves me to say this as someone who is Jewish, um, but I think that a, a lot of what has happened historically is that Zionism became a largely, you know, in many ways, predatory force in response to like they were getting tired of being preyed upon. You know, you look at like uh, Zibatinsky and, and other like, you know, historic Jewish leaders and stuff, you know, that they were fighters, man. Like they were warriors. They were they were like, you know what? Enough's enough. We're not going to be persecuted anymore. We're going to have a homeland no matter what it takes. Now, listen, I can understand how they got there. But it, it's not compatible with libertarianism to be like, you know what, like we were hurt, we've been persecuted, so now we're going to displace another group of people as a response to that. And listen, the Holocaust, one of the worst things that has ever happened in history. I remember going to the Holocaust Museum as a, as a, as a teenager and, and, and crying going through the exhibits crying looking at the 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 the, the wall with like the, the the list of names and stuff and Schindler's List is is one of my favorite movies it's not like a fun movie to watch but it's just a powerful movie to watch to to you know see how people survived in in such terrible circumstances i believe so strongly in the sentiment of never again but honestly jack i i just can't help but feel as a jewish person that what is what has happened historically and even what is continuing to happen now is that the Israeli state in the name of never again is doing it again is persecuting a people and maybe genocide is like not quite the right word there but it's too close for comfort it's we're, we're talking listen a thousand people tragically died October 7th and Hamas every single person responsible for that attack uh you know should be should be punished should be killed um, or, or locked up forever. Right. Um, but okay. Like again, and that's why I said earlier, I, I can condemn Hamas all day long. Can we at least agree that we also have to condemn the IDF because the, you know, th this has gone way beyond a, dispro a, a proportional response. And so I'm just, you know, that's something that we can agree on. I'm wondering. Oh yeah, well yeah. We the funny thing is, is we always already agree on that we, because okay, anti-state. You have to understand, I'm always anti-state, so I'm against the escalations by the Israeli government. The IDF, it, that's the whole part of the tit for tat thing, right? Because it's a constant state of escalation, but the ideology that underpins what is the most jarring aspects of it in a lot of ways is the willingness of those in Hamas to sacrifice children and to put them in front of tanks and other stuff like that to be used as propaganda tools so that, oh, when they throw rocks or there's something, ex some explosion goes off or someone takes credit for, because there's also right, but times that there's faked um, explosives too on that side as well. So where they, they blame the Israeli government and it wasn't them, that kind of thing. It goes both ways. It's a, it's a propaganda war on so many levels. Sure, so, I, I, I agree. Hmm? One more, I have like one little question. I want to uh, pitch it back to Doug here. Um, can 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 we agree then? Like we agree, there's propaganda on both sides. Sure, we we agree that uh, Hamas is, you know, to some extent, like you know, they're, they're, we're saying that they're willing to let children die. Like let, let's say I'm going to grant that to you. You agree that that's not a universal problem in Islam, right? Like there's not Muslims all over the world. There's not Muslims here in the U.S. who are like, you know, screw our children. If they die for a good cause, they're going to heaven. Like. It's not a to me. I see this and like it's not a Muslim problem. 
And it is an ideology problem, but this radical ideology is the thing that a desperate people who were living in, and again, I do cling to the either concentration camp or open air prison language, mm -hmm. people living in this brutal conditions, of course, they're going to be attracted to, to that kind of ideological uh, extremism because they're desperate. Yes, yeah, that's part of blowback. That's a part. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. I, I completely agree with you. You can create blowback by people being traumatized. However, I'm going to give you two important facts, and it's going to really contextualize it, right? So here's two things that when you think about it, you're like, okay, mm, okay, maybe there's a little more to it. So when it comes to um, the radicalization elements, right, that is very specific and historical. This, you know, Islam is a conquering religion. It came out of literally spitting at the Byzantine Christians and having the uh, the dome built to basically say, ha, we've we've conquered you Christians. So the history of Islam and the caliphate is a violent conquest. And it's kind of silly to pretend like as if, oh, there isn't something built into there where it's like Jews are pigs and they deserve to die as part of that type of extreme statist intersection in the same way that you'd be like, wow, if you're a really racist Zionist person, you have really, you know, wicked intentions, right? If you're a statist racist Zionist, oh, bad. If you're a statist, you know, fundamentalist Muslim. And the thing is, is, you know, you only got 16-ish, 17 million Jews. You got 2 billion Muslims, even if it's a very tiny percentage. Well, guess what? That's a lot of people. That's tens of millions if you have 2 billion global Muslims, right? So again, that's why it's a scale issue when you could see that violence come out. Now, the other part that I was going to talk about is Japan, right? Japan had more innocent civilians get mass murdered with two atomic bombs, right, than IDF has killed in 75 years. Japan lost the war. U.S. put in a bunch of military bases, occupied them, rewrote their constitution, gave women equal rights by it. Jap uh, American soldiers would rape Japanese women and get away with all kinds of crimes from their bases. Did the Japanese go and shoot rockets? At the, at the U.S. soldiers who were stationed in their country while they were banned from guns, their military was neutered? Did the Japanese keep kamikazing and, uh, you know, blowing up the Americans? No. Should we should we nuke Gaza? Is that, is that like, no, I mean, no, I'm, no. I'm, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but, like, we, we I'm literally... About. I'm talking I'm, about the fact that other people did not go and start suicide bombing because of occupation by the U.S. government. They With more people murdered in occupation, they didn't go and start killing them all. The Japanese didn't go and start like, oh, we're going to have a forever war with these you know, white invaders. What's the ideological difference when you get that part that there is a psychology that's different and that's why the violence continues, then it clicks. And this, I made this comment, too, when it came to uh, the Pulse nightclub shooter, right? Scott Horton makes this thing. He's like, oh, he just was doing it at a blowback. I'm like, dude, this guy was born in America in a New York Jewish hospital. He's Afghani. His parents are Afghani. His dad was an FBI agent, which is the most suspicious thing. He was complaining about Syria, bombing and other stuff. He had nothing to do with that directly. He went and he shot up a gay nightclub. He didn't go blow up like an army recruiting station or even a police station. He shot up a bunch of innocent people. Why is it that you and me, we are like, wow, the U.S. government shouldn't be bombing Syria. This is evil. But we don't go and blow up a bunch of innocent people. What's the difference? The difference is I ideology. He believes that it's okay to go and murder people. Why did he believe that? Listen to the full transcript of the call. He said, I am joining ISIS far more times than he said, oh, I'm just sad about kids dying. He said that he was a soldier of Allah and Muhammad. 
he uh, he and, and um he was you know uh sent by Muhammad essentially. He said that far more times. That's the psychological difference. You don't go and kill innocent people because you're mad at U.S. policy. You don't go and shoot up some random people because you have a Christian faith and you know that you do not want to hurt innocent people. People who have a different ideology of that radical kind do not. The Japanese got bombed like crazy. They're still way more advanced. They didn't go shoot up a bunch of stuff. They didn't have Islam. I, I, I don't fundamentalist Islam. That is you know a core factor. And if you How? don't see that, then I highly recommend again, read Son of Hamas. This man became a Christian, not a Jew, a Christian. And he saw firsthand what the core spiritual issue was. He recognized it and it applies both to Jews and to Muslims. He was saying to himself, I see the death cult. I see why it keeps perpetuating because all they're doing is sacrificing themselves and, and glorifying death. And looking forward to it. Jet, so jet, the core. Uh, I, I, one one thing. I'm, I'm going to keep this really brief, like yeah. two sentences. The you you say why why are Christians doing this, Jack? The American Empire, and it saddens me to say this. The American Empire is essentially uh, doing all of the violence it's done across the world since you know the end of World War II to now, in the name of of Christianity. That's like one of the that's one of the things that fueled me into the anti-war movement was seeing how much of what was done to Afghanistan and to Iraq and the people in the Middle East was done in the name of my religion. So I don't think that we can say that it's only Islam that has a violence problem. It just comes in different forms. And a lot of that does, in my opinion, and I just disagree with you. I think it's much more tied to the power dynamics at play. I mean, I don't personally say whatsoever. I, I grew up reading Voice of the Martyrs magazine and Christians were smuggling Bibles into countries around the world, delivering a gospel message to persecuted people from Pakistan to China. So growing up, I was quite familiar with all the different types of persecutions that went outside just U.S. militarism. And certainly there's some neoconservative Christians who vote for people who they think, oh, you're doing something right. You know, you're God's messenger. And certainly they're deluded. But you're not going to find an evangelical Christian strap a bomb to their chest and blow up a school bus. No, they just outsource it. So I don't, right. know, I don't think that's that much better. <laughs> <laughs> they just they just outsource it to people who have weapons of mass destruction and can do it on a much larger right. scale. Yeah, but, well, <laughs> to, to be fair, I don't know if they're necessarily saying that we're they're doing it in the name of Christianity, but they're doing it I, I in think the name they of are. a. Well, I think they're doing it in the name of American Christianity. They're doing it in a form of a specific type of Christianity. Well, that's more of a bastardization of Christianity, if anything. Yeah. Well, the, the a lot of Muslims <laughs> say that what's going on with this radical Islam is a bastardization of Islam, and it has a lot to do with the fact that these are desperate people living in desperate environments. And to act like Christianity never had any expansionist times in its history, is I also think historically uh, incorrect. So, listen, I'm not a uh, uh, I'm not a Muslim. Uh, you know, I'm a religious exclusivist. I am a Christian. Uh, so I think Islam is a flawed religion. Um, but but I think that it's just convenient to be like, you know what? Yeah, there are two, you know, however many billion uh, Muslims in the world. And if this was something that was just fundamentally tied to their religion, we would see a lot more violence than we do. Instead, where the Muslims are violent are where American Christians are bombing them or where Jews are bombing them, unfortunately. You're using Muslim-majority countries. It's peaceful where there's occupation. If you have a, like in Saudi Arabia, a royalty, a royal family ruling under Sharia, 
the conquest is complete. Of course, it's peaceful if you suppress speech. Of course, it's peaceful if you control women. They couldn't even drive until 2017. They still can. Of course, it's peaceful if you kick out all the Jews. Of course, it's peaceful if you persecute anybody who openly practices Christianity. Yeah, peaceful. That's how come this distortion exists because it's ignored in the countries where they persecute Christians and the countries where they persecute Hindus, or maybe it's the religious minority group of you know the Sunni Shia divide. That's ignored. It's just because it's not war. It's just internal persecution. Oh, well, okay. They're just, you know, going from Iraq, 1.5 million Christians now in 2002. Now today, 90% gone, 150,000. Nobody cares. They don't, Check, they don't, out, outside not saying, of saying, oh my gosh, the Christians have been persecuted by 90% in Iraq. No, it's not going to make the news because they're not going to care about Christians who are having their lives destroyed in religious persecution by the government that has a muslim we, majority control because it just if, doesn't bleed and lead if we go back through history when 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 people were polled about do, who do you want to rule over this area people used to say they wanted america to rule over them because they actually thought that america was was a great nation that it stood for great things um now what we have is a lot of where, where you do see yeah these brutal uh, islamic dictatorships a lot of them still exist because of American inter interventionisms and propping up these dictatorships, maybe outside of Iran, um, you know, it's like a relationship with the Saudis and, and, and other areas. So, I, I, again, I think I, I, I will grant you that there is some nuance here in terms of evaluating Islam and the role that it plays in it. But I do think that you are uh, overly in an overly reductionist way, trying to pin it primarily on that instead of primarily on the living conditions, the governments that they live under, and the effects of American of, of American foreign policy. No, well, I can prove the the, the counterfactual there right away. So in uh, Kuwait, um, you know, because the Palestinians. Palestinians there support Saddam Hussein in 91. The Kuwaiti government kicked out 300,000 Palestinians. You know that? Yeah. And you know, 10,000 of them went to Lebanon. And in Lebanon right now, there's 200,000 Palestinian refugees. They don't have any rights. They can't buy land. 93% poverty rate. It's literally tent camps and squalor. Does anybody care about those people? No, they don't care that the Kuwaiti government kicked them out. Why? Because the Muslim, Muslim majority thing, it doesn't bleed and lead. They might, they'll just say, well, Saddam and then America influence, but they don't have any moral agency for the people that do violence when it's a Middle Eastern country against its own you know, people, to use a bad term, I don't like the collectivism, but you get the idea. So the whole gist of this is that moral agency is only assigned when it's certain people, if it's Jewish or a white American, but everybody else is just perpetually a reactionary. They're just, well, it's just blowback. They don't have any moral agency for if they go and massacre people or they're strapped bombs to their kids. This is a terrible framing that misses the core root. And it misses the core root in such a big way because way before America ever existed was Islamic empires that conquered, you know, quite a bit of the world violently. And the reason why there would be peace at any point is because the people who were under them had to prove that they were subjugated by paying the jizya tax. Yeah, yeah. They or convert. <laughs> or they'd have to wear a star or not a star back then. It was a different thing, but it was a proto star thing. So this whole idea, like they, they say, oh, it's peaceful. It's peaceful. Yeah. Peaceful if you're enslaved. Right. It's like saying this plantation is very peaceful. See, the slaves just work. They don't they don't they don't rise up. It's the same thing, and people don't get that because they're just so busy just hearing whatever the media is talking about, this conflict, that conflict. They don't 
care about all the minutia of the different Arab countries and the persecution that goes on. And so well, no, I, 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 so, so I'll agree with you that not enough people care about all those, all those little things. I think the, I think that is a problem that like, yeah, I, I want to wake people up more to pay attention to what's going on in the world and to care about what's going on in the world. But again, I do think what's propping up a lot of these things uh, is, is both directly and indirectly the consequences of, 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 of American interventions in, in the regions uh, historically. Again, not to say they don't have, and not, I'm not saying it's a hundred percent blowback. I'm saying it is a large enough percentage the consequence of blowback and American interference and distortions, like I said in my opening argument, right? In the same way that when we, when, when the government interferes in the economy and it creates distortions, that's again, this is a Misesian argument, right? So I'm arguing for libertarian principles in the same way that state actions in the market create distortions, which lead to these bubbles, which leads to malincentives and malinvesting and things like that. Um, and then those things crash. That is also what's happening in and in, in everything's economics or everything's politics, we can we can look at it, you know, in, in that way. The same thing's happening in in the realm of human interaction. States are acting, and and it's creating distortions in the market of human interactions. And the state with the biggest thumbprint on the scale right now is the American Empire, and 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 then their proxy right now, unfortunately, is the Israeli state uh, in, in the Middle East, and so. Um, should we move beyond that and also report on those uh, other things going on, the other violations of rights historically uh, in these areas and whatnot? And should we always be advocating for peace and voluntarism and, and libertarian I I ideals? Absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to be careful. I'm not trying to overly reduce it on my side to say Islam is not a factor, but I, I again, I'm, and we might just have to, have a hard stop and let Doug interrupt us here. Uh, but I, I do think you're reducing it far too much to, to that and not giving enough uh, oxygen to the other, the other aspects. All right. Well, whether this is a hard stop or not, cause this is one of those like problems of like, I could go all night and I don't want to keep you guys. And, and I'm sure a lot of people would oh, love to, uh, I'm night. not saying I have to go. I just said like this, this line of back <laughs> well, no, and forth just, might not I'm, have an end. I'm prefacing the fact that, uh, I have to find a way to wrap this up and there's, there's no way to wrap this up, which is very apropos of the topic. Um, so this is like, we don't know what to do here. I, uh, sitting from my perspective, it seems to me that both of you are, are right in a certain, in a pretty significant extent. Um, Jack, you are very, um, what you're very much against is poor libertarian takes uh, and maybe irrational or not fully thought through thinking about the issue and maybe even abandoning some of the anti-state uh, mentality that libertarians, you know, are, you know, born and raised on. Right. Um, and maybe get a little bit too. Um, oh boy, I wish they were born and raised on them. Yeah, we're getting right, there. Right, I got, right. I got five, I got a fifth kid coming in July. So I, I'm yes. doing my part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Uh Jack, do you have any No, I'm, are you doing your part? <laughs> <laughs> right, well, it's uh it's coming. Uh all right, later, all right. later this year, later this year. We'll, we'll leave it there at will that. Be, there'll be uh, events. There'll be events. <laughs> <laughs> right now just preparation. Um yes. so <laughs> in any case, uh you are very much against bad libertarian takes, right? And the 
the non-unique nature of Israel is sort of what you're advocating for. It's like, this is not necessarily anything new. This is how people moved. This is how refugees happened. There's always conflicts over whether or not the land was acquired legitimately or whether any in particular settlements were, you know, colonization or not. And yes, there's always bad actors. Israel's not special in that way. Um, and obviously there is a unique history of why Israel was sort of settled and, I would say maybe there's something unique in in some respects, um, but uh, all of that seems to be a fine critique, and I don't know if it's necessarily um, in conflict with what Jacob has been saying. Maybe some of the history things in the in the narrative and stuff. What what I hear, Jacob, on on your side, what I'm hearing is, as an American, as a person who is very much anti-war, as a person who is very much um, uh, aware now that the empire of the United States, not just at home, but abroad, creates major terrible distortions, not least because it's just influence and, and distortions, but because it's war, but because it's it's you know it's weapons, it's it's violence, it's aggression, uh on, on a on a you know well international level. And it seems like Jack's not joining on your bandwagon on that, uh, and is critiquing even the likes of Scott Horton, you know um peace be upon him right um <laughs> sorry i couldn't resist uh you know i said his name had to say something <laughs> but um you know you know Chris, criticizing scott horton i mean that's like stepping on lava in the in the room man um but 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 that's okay right i mean we're all we're, we're all adults we can all, all talk about this but i don't in some respects i feel like in a lot of ways you're both right and no, Israel is not, you know, immune from criticism. And that's one thing, Jack, I would love to hear you say is instead of critiquing the bad libertarian takes, do you have anything to say about how Israel has responded since uh, October 7th, 2023 as a libertarian? Uh, and um, wh what would you say is like, hey, Israel's acted in a way that is or isn't uh, in comport with libertarian principles? Can, can I add one little thing to that like because sure. we, we kind of missed talking about this part okay he, he seemed to push back against the uh a few of the quotes that i read of the netanyahu sort of like doctrine with with right. supporting and propping up hamas and and i'm not suggesting we should just blindly trust anything officials say but like i read two quotes out of a list of many that i have here uh i'm not saying i need to read them right now but uh so i'd be curious if he's is, is he picking around the edges of my argument or is he saying that there weren't specific policies of propping up and supporting Hamas okay. that, that, that led to this. So if he could maybe yeah. incorporate that Got kind that. of piggyback off that. That makes sense, Jack. Yeah, no, I want to actually very specifically uh, critique that aspect. Um, sure. If you, if you have that information, tell me the date that it happened, the amount of money and who gave it and when. Give me those things. Until then, I go based off of what I have heard and seen outside, including some of my sources, including, you know, Son of Hamas and other publications like, uh, you know, Wall Street Journal, where Avner Cohen was probably one of the biggest expose people on this. Because, again, the people who are reporting this otherwise, were they there? I mean, Avner Cohen apparently was a part of it. Um, who was actually there? Right. Who was actually there? What are the names? What are the dates? What, what was the money? So the thing that I have specifically, again, you can look this up. Wall Street Journal, how Israel helped to spawn Hamas. But when you read the details, the details on that are simply that Israel just allowed Hamas to be able to build its Islamic university, training camps, their schools, and other things like that. They let money come to them. 
So by and large, the, the main thing that happened was that they just simply said, oh, okay, they're going to send money to Hamas. Okay, we'll allow that. Oh, they have a charity they set up in their name to you know funnel money through. We won't violently stop it. Again, it's there's this kind of weird dynamic here because on one hand, people are like, oh, Israel, they're bad if they stop people just trying to create schools and universities and they want to just fund their political stuff. Okay. But then if if you're saying that, well, Israel helped to fund a mosque, well, how? Well, they let Qatar send them, you know, 10 million bucks. Right. No, I, I agree with so that. But, is it? but why did they leave the sides of the coin? But, but why did they leave Hamas in power, though? Like, why? Why wasn't there ever a referendum on that 2006 election? You know, why, why is like if Hamas like and, and again, I think there's just too many. There's there's such an overabundance of quotes from Netanyahu and, 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 yeah. and his administration yeah. talking about how. Hey, we want to divide the Palestinian people. We want Hamas to be in power here, and the, yes, and the and the and the PLO PLO over here in the West Bank because right. it divides them, and then we don't have to deal with the problem. Like, I just don't know how you can say those aren't specific policy prescriptions that contributed to October seventh. What I'm trying to say is that Israel definitely wanted to pit Hamas against PLO, but what they're not connecting on the broader scale of things is that Hamas is getting supported by outside governments. Other governments and organizations, the wider Arab world, wanted Hamas to succeed. They wanted the radicals to succeed, to be a thorn in Israel's side, to launch attacks. So you could say Israel's stopping money, but it doesn't stop those independent moral agents from other countries and other governments saying, we want to support Hamas too, because they have their own agendas for statism. They have their own agendas yeah. for violence. So when people say Israel's doing this, I'm like, dude, it's the other countries who are funding Hamas. They're sending the weapons. They're sending the soldiers. Israel controls Israel, every, Israel, Israel controls Israel, a lot control of what goes right? into there. Israel control everything. That's where you're going to. You well, eventually yeah, go to Israel the can, well, in terms of the money going in, they, they have the ability to stop that. And they, the they also have, they, mm -mm. Well, okay, not everything, they but they, they have the ability to stop a, a certain portion of it. Well, and I have they a have... question, Jacob. What would have happened in 2006? Like, what would what, what could have Israel done to to reverse the decision in 2006? I don't think they well, I don't I think the whole thing was just a bad decision. They shouldn't have like been like, we're not giving you your sovereignty. You're going to be like this weird territory and kind of have your own governing authority, but not really. And like they knew that like Hamas was a terrorist group. And again, and we'd have to go. This would be like a this is like a 30 minute rabbit hole to go through the evidence in well, terms right. of like you how can second guess what could have happened. I guess, I guess it, I would, I would push back on one hand because it seems to come up a lot when I've been studying this, which I am not at all. I'm like a 10th well versus either of the two of you. Um, and one millionth as well versed as, as both of you combined. I'm terrible at math, but um, <laughs> one thing that it keeps coming up in my mind, every time there's all of this, well, this could have happened and that should have happened. And they'd made this wrong decision at this point and that point is that the state of Israel um, or we could, we could substitute Jews or just the state of Israel or whatever is damned. If you do damned, if you don't, no matter what decision it is, Israel made the bad decision. And it's almost like, and this is where I want to kind of get to maybe a little bit of the present day, and we can wrap up here in about 10 minutes, hopefully. Um, the It does seem to me that Israel is taking, and, and even the Netanyahu administration, they're taking a calculated risk knowing that right now they are they have the ire of the world on top of them, and they are doing whatever they think is necessary in spite of it. That is a that's a really risky move. The UN is after them. 
like everybody but maybe the US. I don't even know how it all breaks down in terms of like support. I know Brit Britain might be in support, but it's it's actually waning over time now that it seems like it's it's becoming a even worse of a bad actor on going on going on going. And so there's a lot to critique. And so I don't think any of us sitting here is going to say, yeah, Benjamin Netanyahu's administration and whatever the IDF has been doing has been great. Maybe the initial response is what it was. And, you know, they had to do what they had to do. And you can kind of like shrug and say, well, all right, you know, it's like the first two weeks of COVID. Well, we didn't know what we were dealing with. So we had to react somehow. And you could kind of yeah, let people I, it, off. You could kind of let people. But here's the thing. Um, nobody is saying they're doing things. So. For them to say, we know we're doing things that everyone else says is wrong, uh, says something about the fact that they're just like, well, look, it doesn't matter what we do. We're just going to do what we think is right, as opposed to as opposed to being like, well, if we did this, then we would appease a lot of these other people. But that doesn't seem right because we're going to just piss off the other side. Um, and so it back to back to the you know, it's just it doesn't matter what the Jews do. They're going to be hated for it kind of mentality and i don't mean to make this about specifically anti-semitism that's just the way it came out in my sentence but israel can't do anything right is kind of the vibe i'm getting from from just about everywhere in the news on on all fronts except for the ones that i actually don't really care about which is like like fundamentalist christians and for completely different reasons which is, but this crazy. is this is where this is where and I, I meant to bring this up earlier this is where i'm not saying israel's unique actually when when jack said there's nothing unique going on here well that was kind of what i said in my opening statement i said when we're judging states i think i have a consistent standard and the fundamental basis for how i'm judging israel is how i judge every state and you know states don't get anything right well wow it's almost like we should be anarchists Oh wait, we are, and so that's because states very rarely get anything right, um, and then it's just a matter of scale, right? So that and so because Israel is on a very large stage and operating at a very large scale, then it is that might create the perception that like, oh wow, we're saying everything they're doing is wrong. Well, I mean, I pretty much say that about my own government, and I'll pretty much say it about every other country's government. Like, find me a state where I'm like, man, they're doing a real great job. Right. That's that you're not going to yeah. hear me say that. And no one here is going to say that. So it's um, yeah, we're all so, smiling. Yeah. We're all smiling on screen. For those of you listening later and just hearing it, we're all we're all smiling here. Of course, that's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, OK, so um, I, I don't know how to wrap this up other than to give you guys just a few minutes each to um, to sort of summarize any positions, loose ends. Um, there, there is I, I did have one uh, listener or viewer write in. Uh, made a comment about the self-defense as a right of the Palestinians. And, um, you know, if they're occupied, then shouldn't they be allowed to uh, defend themselves? Uh, Jack, that's probably something you 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 could answer. Jacob, you could speak to that as well. Uh, so I want to get to the listener who, who wrote in that question. Thank you. Um, and, uh, yeah, what do you think, Jack? Shouldn't Palestinians have a right to self-defense? Yeah, 100%. And the question, though, that we're going to go next to is always look at empirical reality. Are we talking about self-defense when someone goes and like, I'm going to go blow up people outside a movie theater? No, that's not self-defense. Mass murdering a bunch of people is definitely escalating violence against people who are not the direct actors. If you're fighting an IDF agent who's kicking in your door because they want to squat, by all means, right? So that is a huge difference that people are missing out in this calculation is that this type of warfare is not really between like the typical things that you see, you think about in war movies, right? It's like, Oh, you have this army and then you have this army. They're fighting. Blah, 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 right. We're talking about a kind of warfare. That's nuts. 
where you have to wonder whether someone who walks into some plaza is strapped with bombs around with a bunch of, you know, metal balls and they're going to rip to shreds 100 people. Right. That's the kind of crazy that you're dealing with. And Israel has the Iron Dome. There's been almost 10,000 rockets shot. And imagine if you're your city. Right. There was 10,000 rockets shot since 2011 coming into you all the time. And you're watching it like a fireworks show. Boom, 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 boom. Right. And you're sitting there like, oh, my gosh, if the Iron Dome doesn't work, one of these rockets is going to blow me to smithereens. Is that level of crazy? In what other situation would you would you be like, oh, OK, you know, uh, I hope nobody does anything about that. I hope the rockets just hit, right? You'd be crazy, right? And we want a private market defense where we can do things better than that and not just have the Israeli government work you know, on that issue. But to pretend like as if this is something that is anything other than a crazy, unique situation in terms of the conflict, the nature of the violence that's there in, in terms of the struggle, it's just incomparable. And that's why people need this kind of long history. That's why they need the bigger picture about the ideologies and what's really going on. And at the end, <laughs> a reminder that the goal should be about having peace by de-escalation, property rights, moving toward respective individuals, doing restitution as best as possible. Obviously, it's never going to be perfect. There's just different people in different times. They're dead since, you know, 1948. And it's their grandkids or whatever who are around. It's it's not going to be neat yeah. in that way. So we don't control it. We're just here talking ideas, but we want people here to not get lost in the collectivism, not grow hate against a group of people, not grow, you know, all different types of these like, oh, I just want this government to just destroy these people. We don't want that psychology as an outcome. We want yeah. actual peace. So we want love and understanding and moving away from the ideologies that are about a death cult. Jacob, thoughts on the self-defense of the Palestinians? Yeah, I mean, so October 7th was not self-defense. That was an attack. Um, you know, Palestinians have a right to self-defense, yes. And blowback isn't the same. Saying something's blowback doesn't mean it's always like morally justified, right? 9-11 uh, was blowback. None of the people who died on 9-11, though, deserved to die. It was still a, a, a violation of the non-aggression principle. So, you know, uh, again, like I've said before, Hamas uh, is terrible, and I, I I want to provide no cover for them at, at all. And and so we I want to be very careful to draw that line between, yeah, Palestinians have a right to self-defense, but Hamas's actions are not uh, self-defense. Um, they, they are, unfortunately, operating, though, in similar fashion to what states do, which is they don't, uh, states don't engage in like a libertarian self-defense they they often just trade innocent innocent casualties mm -hmm. for for innocent casualties yeah. and that's part of the problem you know jack brought up a, an interesting point with the iron dome and he, he kind of went where i was going when he brought that up like you know the problem with the iron dome is that socialized defense um and and it is kind of crazy to be like hey all these bombs are coming in at least the iron dome's taking care of it so i guess we don't have to worry you're like who would think that it's like well that's basically been kind of the, the policy of israel so again, not trying to pick on Israel because all states and all socialism uh, make bad decisions because they're not operating on proper incentives. Uh, but yeah, it, it is kind of crazy. Kind of crazy to be like, hey, let's lock a bunch of people up into this little tiny area. Uh, let's you know uh, assist in the uh, formation of a terrorist group having power over, over over them, and then instead of like I don't know finding a way to resolve this, uh, keep them there. And just let this socialized defense system keep us safe, and nothing bad's going to happen. And it, it, it didn't work. And then the predictable blowback uh, finally had its day. 
and and so and that's where i'd say we, we, you know it does seem like we are aligned the solution is uh rejecting socialism the, the solution is rejecting statism um and you know the more governments move towards a libertarian order as opposed to a statist order the less mistakes they're going to make uh but you know if if we're going to say israel's government needs to move towards a, a libertarian order well then they need to uh say hey there's a bunch of people living this little land that we basically have sovereignty over and they don't have rights and we are definitely to a large extent responsible for uh the uh the trauma that they suffered and we need to do the best job we can in in rectifying that situation and it's not going to be perfect um, but that's that's the only path forward is is a uh, is is to find some kind of peace. And every day that goes by that they aren't moving in that direction is just, you know, more building up towards future blowback. I mean, listen, like Pat Buchanan uh, brought this up like 15 years ago. He was like when when they were bombing Gaza back then. He's like, you know, I'm like. 12 13 years the kids growing up there are going to be terrorists and yeah it's kind of what happened it's a very vicious cycle and and so uh something needs to be done about it and and you know maybe uh like jack said is right uh people need to you know exhibit that kind of christ-like response to be like you know what we aren't over gonna you know the israeli government and and i'm not blaming the people but the people need to realize this and, and demand a libertarian government over them not a statist one and say you know what like we're not going to overcome evil with evil. That's what the Bible says, right? Like we, instead we have to overcome evil with good. And so that, that that's a good answer, I think. All right, Jack, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I just want to say, I love Jacob's uh, closing remark there. Fight. You don't want to fight evil with evil. We're, we're trying to actually shift things toward good and toward love and compassion in a way that is not escalating status violence or swinging the pendulum back over and be like, oh, well, we want this group instead to rule and magically with democracy, we'll have less violence, right? We're moving away from those those uh, solutions. And I, I think, uh, again, I just cannot recommend enough this book, Son of Hamas by Masab Hassan Youssef. He himself became Christian and he just gives an incredible contextualization because he has both the Hamas side and the IDF side when he was a, a double agent later in life. And then he quit that and it's like, I'm done. And then he became Christian. Mm. I just think it's a, it's a fantastic read to help contextualize it. He doesn't downplay Israeli violence. He doesn't downplay um, Hamas's violence, but he does give a really uh, incredible Christian perspective on the psychologies underpinning everything and, and gives a great, you know, a uh, call to action for people to think differently. So. Jacob, was that, was those, were those your final remarks? You, you cool with that? I, yeah, I, I'm sure you, I know you have three hours worth of material to keep going on. You don't, I don't, don't have that time. Li, 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 <laughs> so listen, you, Doug, you, you, you're going to have to use your free market principles here and decide how, what doors you want to open and close. Door, okay. I know, right. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think I could, I think I can say for the three of us, we enjoyed this conversation. I think it was, it was helpful for me, especially because I've been seeing the, the interactions on online um, uh, a bit. Um, although I did give up Facebook for Lent on my phone, so I'm not as quite as active because um, it was such a terrible habit. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we 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 joined a live room here so that we can talk about it. It was really great for me to hear you guys um, talk about talk about your different sides. And, you know, at the end of the day, in some ways, we're you're, we're there's that Venn diagram and there's a lot of overlap. Right. It's not just a narrow overlap because we are committed anarchist libertarians. And so 
in some ways to me, it seems like there's a little bit of a focus. There's obviously some disagreement over some facts, history, narrative, and those kinds of things. I can't imagine that we won't have a further conversation about this in the future. And uh, But I want to thank you both. I want to thank those who joined, those who uh, chimed in in the comments field. Uh, keep sharing it. If you are uh, wanting to listen to this, you'll listen to it on the LCI Green Room uh, podcast feed. Um, and of course, you can also watch it on any of the live stream options. So Jack, Jacob, thank you for, for being here to have this conversation. Of course. Thank you. My pleasure.